You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Good everybody. Buongiorno and konnichiwa bitches. I'm your host, Jason Almi, and welcome to the Avocado Cafe, everybody. Thank you for joining us again this week. I really appreciate everybody who's listened so far to the first three episodes of this podcast. I've gotten some really incredible feedback. I've gotten some wonderful ideas. I've spoken to some fellow core fans who are all about it, and they've really had some excellent feedback. And I just want to say thank you very much for listening. And for today, we're going to be discussing Orange Road TV episode two, A Little Lemony Kiss for Her. Another title that just rolls right off the tongue, right? For us English speakers, at least. A Little Lemony Kiss for Her. And I think the idea behind calling it a lemony kiss was that she's not kissing a lemon. She's not actually making out with any fruit at all. It's a, it's a lemony kiss in that it the flavor is, is lemony. It has a lemony flavor, I guess. This episode originally aired April 13th of 1987, was directed by Suda Yumiko and written by Terada Kenji again. He's going to write a lot of these. You're going you're gonna to really get familiar with that name. If you're not already familiar with Terada Kenji, he is very much involved from the point in time where the anime goes into production all the way through the Shinkor stuff. We open with a dream sequence, and I really, you know, I love this episode. I can't say enough good things about this episode. It's a really incredible episode. To follow up on on the first episode of the television series, this one is, uh, is just a really awesome episode that gives us even more to dig into. We, we start with this opening dream sequence, of course. The, the, all of the imagery in this dream sequence is yellow and green tinged. It's colors that are evoking lemon and lime. They're kind of a bright lime green and a bright a lemony yellow, which actually foreshadows a, a later line of dialogue from Kurumi in the next scene that a kiss tastes like a lemon. So, of course, the, the intro scene has to use this color. It's like... Um, I don't know. It looked like Sprite on cellular. It's like a Sprite label. They just they use the the same kind of yellow and greens that you would see on a Sprite can. But 
I, I, I appreciate the idea of them setting up this dream sequence where Kasuga gets pretty darn close to kissing Ayukawa, but it foreshadows Kurumi's later line of dialogue. But how does she know a kiss tastes like a lemon? What if y'all just went on a date and ate gyoza? I mean, I can't imagine it's going to taste very lemony then. It might be a little garlicky is all I'm saying. But these dream colors highly contrast Ayukawa's red hat, which she is again wearing for this scene. If we consider this red hat as some kind of a symbol, um, Kasuga's possession of the red straw hat in waking life, after taking possession of it in the first scene of the, the first episode, it's an indication that he's infatuated with Ayukawa. He oftentimes will hold the hat or look at the hat when he's when he's thinking about her. His his so his possession of the red straw hat means something in in waking life, but then in the dream uh, in the dream place, she's got possession of the hat again. She's wearing it, and I think that it might in the dream at least kind of indicate be a cue for us that she's reciprocating Kasuga's attraction to her. So in real life, he's hanging onto this hat because he's got this crush on this girl, but in the dream. She's wearing the hat again. She's taking it back. That means that she's she feels about him the way he feels about her, at least in this dream. Um, and it's a sure sign that we're witnessing a dream and that it's Kasuga's dream. I think even for somebody who's watching this for the very first time, there's no question about it as you're watching the scene. This is a dream sequence. And it's the colors that tell you that. It's the um, sort of asynchronous, non-chronological Ayukawa's repossessing the hat that, that tells you that it's a dream sequence right off the bat. And it's it's Kasuga's dream. And you see that as the, the dream progresses. You can tell that it's his dream because it's going his way, right? It's going really, really well for them. He's acting all cool. It's got to be his dream. He's like, he does a little like hair thing. He's sort of like looks all cool, looks off to the side and then looks back at her kind of, you know, cool, like with his eyes and stuff like that. He's just being the guy he wants to be in his dream, just like Mr. Cool. So the red hat kind of blows away as she confesses that she's in love with them in the dream, of course. These feelings are now openly expressed and the, the, the hat can blow away. The job of the hat is now complete. It can blow away off screen. And neither one of the characters make any attempt to go after the hat at this point. The hat did its job as a symbol. It's blowing off screen. Now the characters are embracing and the dream is just getting good from Kasuga's point of view. From his perspective, hell yeah. It's about to go really, really right. Um, and it's really, this dream is also interesting. You'll note that this is one of the very few times you'll hear these characters call each other by their given names. I would say first names because that's how we do it in the U.S. But they're not first names in Japan, right? They're given names. They call each other Madoka and Kyosuke. And that is one of the only times you'll ever hear it. Another sure sign that this is a dream. This is not the real world that these characters inhabit because they're they're also uh, breaking away from this convention that they've already established in that first episode. Just as they're about to kiss, things are getting really good for Kasuga. He wakes up. There's an effect used as his dream is ending, and it's evocative of film stock. This might not be obvious to younger viewers of Orange Road, but in projectors, at least back in the day, at the time that this, this um, episode was released April 13th of 1987, reels of film would be run through projectors in theaters when you went to see a movie. And the reels would have to be changed 
One reel didn't contain the whole film. A typical reel was something like 11 minutes on average of the film. So you can imagine a two-hour film, the reel has to be changed several times in order to keep that film going. And when you're sitting in the audience watching the movie, you'll never know that the reel is being changed. That's not obvious at all. You, you want the experience of film going, of watching a movie in the theater to be seamless. You don't want to know that there's a projection tech up there who's changing reels. And so it's very important that the reels be changed on time. That will allow them to continue seamlessly. But of course, his dream is being interrupted. This this um, this narrative of his dream is being interrupted. So the the animators provide the effect of a reel running all the way out. So when the, the, re- the reel is allowed to run to the end, a projector loses power or something, uh, the reel is going to exit the projector as it runs to its end, and you'll get that weird sound and that kind of flickering of the screen. So the animation at the end of this dream sequence is meant to evoke this film stock theater experience. It's another visual cue that this was a dream. This was a fictional sequence, like a movie is a you know, documentaries aside. Most movies are fictional works, and so this is a visual. This is the the the, the animators. This is the the director visually telling us that. The dream is ending, but it's it's ending prematurely. There's an accident happening. Something's going wrong, just like with the the projector um, analogy. It's failing, like a reel not being changed. It's interrupting Casca's dream, and he wakes literally kissing Jingoro's ass. Because Jingoro is also my 19-month-old daughter's favorite character. This is her favorite moment in the entire show, all 48 episodes. Casca kissing Jingoro's ass best scene ever. We get a tight shot of the hat, a little bit of a zoom in as Casca acknowledges that he's back in the waking world. His crush on Ayukawa continues unrequited. That hat is back in his possession. There's still some purpose for it yet. In these early episodes, the hat is kind of a proxy for Ayukawa. As I said a moment ago, he holds it or he even wears it. And that's another visual cue for us that he's thinking about her in in those moments. Uh, in the next scene, you'll note that Manami is making three lunches. It could be sexist for Kasuga to expect Manami to make his lunch because of gender roles. He expects his, uh, his sister to make his lunch because she has a vagina and he has a penis. But um, in this case, Manami is also making Kurumi's lunch, which means it's probably more likely that everybody relies on Manami for this type of family role. She has to ensure that the family is fed. She's taking on this mother role. And this is an early indication that she has this level of responsibility. She's filling in for their deceased mother who um, is not there to take care of them. Manami has to take over some of that as the kind of responsible sister. Again, I mean... I don't think it would kill Casca to do some dishes or maybe do a few things around the house. Let's presume that he is doing some things and making it fair for uh, his sister, especially Manami. But this is going to be something that comes up later in a in a future episode down the line with Manami and, and the level of responsibility that that she... Um, I don't know that she's taken it on. It, it, it fell to her somehow, some way. But we'll talk more about that in a future episode. 
Um, probably not a real overt example of, of sexism, though, but a little bit there. I mean, Kasuga's just a, strolls out of his room after getting ready for school, and he's, like, ready to go. But there's his sister over there putting his lunch together, slaving for him. But she's also taking care of Kurumi as well. So it it seems like maybe the siblings are just kind of leaning on her a little bit. So uh, I, I really enjoyed, as he's walking out of his bedroom as well, um, Kurumi tells Kasuga that that uh, her and Manami's conversation about kissing has nothing to do with him. It's like a subtle dig at him because he's like, hey, who are you kissing? You, know, you ain't kissing nobody. They're talking about the lemon flavor of the kiss that gives the episode its name and also was foreshadowed in the dream sequence that that opened the episode. I think that you know we're going to enjoy some continuity in this episode that's kind of uncharacteristic of Orange Road overall, so enjoy it while you can. This episode relies heavily on the events that occurred in the previous episode. Your knowledge of, of the episode one events is crucial, I think, to getting episode two. Um, Kasuga's dad, Takashi, lectures Kasuga about, about using the power and it's not there just to establish continuity from the previous episode where he used the power to blow up Ayukawa's uh, cigarette, but it's also meant to establish the conflict for this episode. It's laying the groundwork for the main conflict of this episode. And it's it, Kasuga admits he shouldn't be using the power. He knows better. He doesn't need his dad to lecture him, but the, the lecture is built into the opening minutes of the episode again to, to foreshadow the coming conflict. I always love, I love when Kurumi gets like defiant. I mean, Kurumi's always defiant. She destroys her father's newspaper using her ESP. And it's an early example of how uh, Kasuga Takashi's kids use their power against him, especially Kurumi. Um, she's, she is especially um, willing to, to utilize this particular advantage over him. And they kind of dominate him a little bit, even within his own home. I mean, he's supposed to be the patriarch, right? And they undermine him. They're able to undermine him using this power that he doesn't have. The power comes from his deceased wife, their mother. And of course, he doesn't have the power. So he's outnumbered by espers in his own home, and he's meant to be the patriarch. He's meant to be the guy in control. Sometimes they remind him that he may not be in control the way he thinks he is. Uh, he's the breadwinner. He's in control of the income, but his his daughter here is reminding him, I'm shredding this paper. You know, the, the abuse that Takashi suffers is, uh, is kind of anti-patriarchal in that sense. His teenage daughters wield this superior physical power over him at times, and this is one of those examples. And I think it's also maybe meant in a... Uh, a generational context. There's a little contrast here between the younger generation represented by Manami and Kurumi. In this instance, very much Kurumi is the one destroying his paper. Uh, so they tend to consent to Takashi's governance over them. They tend to look up to him as the father figure. He's the, the patriarch, but not always, right? They understand that his rules stem from love for them and his desire to protect them, secure their well-being, all of that stuff. Nonetheless, I really think that the 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 occasional um, the occasional defiance, the occasional abuse that he receives from the kids is meant to symbolize the coming of age of this then new generation of kids that are on the cusp of adulthood. They're going to become adults, and they're going to 
a takeover for the the older generation, uh, which Takashi represents, and that you know some of these old ways are going to move out. And I think it's indicative of of the culture and the time. I mean, I think it's very much indicative of of 1980s and this this wave of youth culture that's the brand new stuff coming in. I, it's it's it reinforces a lot of the the motifs in in Orange Road too, with the music, everything. So in their third encounter, Kasuga takes a very reasonable approach towards Ayukawa. He really just intends to ignore her. He's going to proceed to class when he sees her in the hallway. He's at first kind of like, but then he decides, you know what? I don't want to get smacked again. I'm just going to mind my own business. He keeps moving. However, at this point in time, Ayukawa does stop Kasuga and she's nice to him. She she tells him, don't worry, the teacher won't get you. I always come this way. And she's being very friendly with him. Not what he's expecting. He's sort of expecting her to be consistent in terms of her behavior. She's not. I mean, the last time he talked to her, she was smacking him. She was pretty pissed at him. This time around, she's, I, I guess, ready to let bygones be bygones and, and put that water under the bridge. But as she turns to him in the hallway... For just a moment, a couple of seconds, she's rendered in that same lemon-lime color tones from Kasuga's earlier dream. In that moment, he's seeing her exactly as he did in his dream. It's like this flashback of his dream as she's turning to him. In the dream, Ayukawa was being much more friendly to him. And then in this scene, she proceeds to be maybe not as friendly. She doesn't confess her love and try to kiss him, but... She's more friendly in this scene. She's like ready to talk to him in a reasonable way. They're going to have a nice, converse, pleasant conversation walking to class. In this sense, though, so it's a very rough sense, the dream was kind of a premonition. And he hasn't had a premonitory dream yet, but this flash of dream color might be an indication that they're about to have a, a positive interaction at least, that maybe there's some way in which that dream he had can come true. It's possible. She doesn't hate him at least. Kasuga then, I mean, it's his internal monologue, so no one can hear it. But if somebody could hear it, oh my gosh. He proceeds to chalk it up to, she must have been in a bad mood yesterday. He says that in his internal monologue. She must have been in a bad mood yesterday. He's not accepting that it might have been him who put his foot in his mouth with the healthy babies comment. As he narrates, he says, or so I thought. Indicating that from the point of his narration, from the point of his voiceover, he's maybe grown a little bit from that particular lack of self-awareness that, oh, she must have been in a bad mood. He thought that at the time. But maybe he understands now, now that he's narrating the story, that, that he's grown a little bit. He's come to understand others and maybe a little self-awareness. And he understands that maybe maybe he had something to do with her uh, attitude towards him in the previous episode. So then it's a little bit of a shock to him. He waves at Ayuko and she turns away. Music cuts abruptly. It sort of acknowledges Kasuga's dismay. He waves at her. She just turns. And she saw him. She doesn't give a shit. She, she turns. She's looking out the window. The music cuts immediately as his face kind of drops. And this is a really good uh, use of a music. It's a, the music just boom, just like the pit of his stomach just drops, right? And so this music is non-diegetic. I don't want to talk too much. I mean, I could do an entire hour about diegesis and diegetic materials versus non-diegetic materials. But whenever you're watching a television show or a movie, uh, let's say there's a disco scene 
there's going to be a disco scene in the next episode. So we'll talk about that next episode. But the the disco scene, there would be music playing. As viewers, we can hear that music, but so can the characters. They're dancing to it or they're trying to talk over it. That's a, an example of a diegetic music. The, the music is occurring in the world. Oftentimes in television shows and movies, there is what's called non-diegetic music, which is it's some kind of orchestral score that goes along with like an opening sequence or with some climax of the film. The Marvel characters are fighting and there's some grand music going, but it's not like they have a band there playing. They don't have this whole orchestra there playing as Thanos is pummeling everybody. The idea is that the music is there. The characters are not aware of it. They're not hearing it. It doesn't occur in their world. The music is for us. The music is part of our experience of the film, and it's meant to highlight the emotions of the characters or the um, the epic nature of the events. And this is an example of that. The, the music that was playing that cut abruptly was not playing in the classroom. The classroom, they didn't have music going. They're trying to study they're trying to pay attention to the teacher. There's no music playing. That music was for our benefit. That music was non-diegetic. The characters couldn't hear it, but it's perfect because if you have this non-diegetic music going, it's almost background until it drops. And then it hits right when he, right when he's shocked by her turning away from him. And it's it enhances our experience and enjoyment. And it does enhance some of the comedy of like his face just just falling, just like, ugh, you know, like, wait a minute. I thought we just had this nice experience and now she's not even acknowledging me. And he, he doesn't know what to do with her. The next scene, now we're starting to build towards kind of the main uh, conflict of the episode. We're going to get to, to the, the climax and some really important pivotal moments for character development as well as for where we're going to go in the next 46 episodes after this one. We've got the the gym class. It begins with the the female students doing the gymnastic routine. Um, Ayukawa has a, an epic gymnastic routine. We open with Komatsu and Hata, mostly Komatsu, but he's he they're they're like um raiding all the girls and they're they're clapping and screaming and of course when it's Ayuko's turn, he's just like, all right, let's go play some basketball. He gets up and goes. And Kasuka's like, what the hell? Why are you not going to stay for Ayuko? And there's more than a little irony in the borderline sexual assailant Komatsu announcing that he doesn't associate himself with delinquents like Ayukawa, as if he's some kind of fine, upstanding young man rather than a scuzz bucket who views women as nothing more than objects for male sexual gratification. So we, we as viewers, we're not supposed to identify with Komatsu in that scene. We're supposed to be like, whatever, dude. Like, uh, Of course, we see that Ayukawa is extremely athletically gifted. It makes sense. She's a skilled, talented martial artist. It makes sense that she would have this physical prowess that would, would um, extend to other forms of athletics. We're going to see that a lot throughout the show. Uh, she exerts herself a little bit here, too. I mean, you see some beads of sweat on her. She's shaking a little bit. but uh, So her performance isn't entirely effortless. Um, but she quits her routine early. I think maybe at the point she realizes that it's costing her some effort, like it's not cool to try. I guess that's, I mean, that's a thing with teenagers and teenagers that are considered delinquents. It's like, it's not cool if I try to do something well at school, you know, I want to just go smoke. So she quits her routine early. She doesn't end it in any kind of real way. She just kind of hops down and Kasuga claps nonetheless. 
Even as the rest of Ayukawa's classmates stared at her like she grew a dick out of her forehead. Everyone's just looking at Ayukawa. The teacher's protesting like, you got to end your routine. She's just like, whatever. No, I don't. I do what I want. I'm Ayukawa. I do what I want. Kasuga claps nonetheless. Everybody, the whole place is silent except Kasuga is clapping, and he supports her regardless of what everyone else thinks. This is an indication that he's got her back no matter what. It doesn't matter what all these other people think. She acts cool. She looks over at Kasuga. Uh, she tries to kind of brush it off, but I actually I think it probably meant something to her that Kasuga was so willing to support her in that way when when everybody else was just staring at her like, what is wrong with you? It's an indication that Kasuga is not going to value social expectations for behavior above Ayukawa's own expression of her genuine self. There's this is a great early example of that theme of social conformity that I mentioned in the second episode that everybody's like, what the hell are you doing? You're, you ended your routine early as if this is some bad thing that she hopped down. And Kasuga even suffers a brief moment of this social backlash. Uh, Komatsu and Hata and some of the other male characters kind of looking at him like they got their their faces like right up near him. They're scrutinizing him for supporting Ayukawa when everybody else is, is shunning her. So he's not conforming to what everybody else is doing. He should be shunning Ayukawa as well. And so in that regard, it's like he and Ayukawa are kind of kindred spirits. He's willing to sort of step out of line. She's really willing to step out of line. She does as she pleases again. Ultimately, it shows that Kasuga is is He's on her page. He's willing to go against the grain with and for her, and he's going to support her first and foremost. So I do think that that had an an impression on Ayukawa early on in the series. So it's an important scene. But we get into, with the basketball game, we get into the, the main theme for this episode, and that is exploiting the power and whether or not that can be considered honest. And what kind of premium does Costco place on honesty in his interactions with his classmates, with Ayukawa? This is ultimately a teenage boy, and he wants to impress the girl that he's got a crush on. Ayukawa is there watching him play basketball. And he knows that if he uses the power, he can win the basketball game for sure. He knows if he doesn't use the power that maybe he loses. He's not especially athletic, as he'll tell you. The pros are he gets to look cool. He gets to impress Ayukawa. He might win the admiration of his peers. Uh, In the manga, it's less obvious why Kasuga decides not to use the power to win the basketball game. The anime does a, a good job explaining this decision and putting him in a good light for it. Ultimately, he doesn't want to impress Ayukawa using the power because He views it as dishonest. It's duplicitive. It's tantamount to lying to her. It's manipulating her into feeling a certain way about him under false pretenses. And he doesn't want to do that. He's, he almost views the the use of power in the sport as cheating. It is. Um, but he doesn't want to impress Ayukawa under these false pretenses. This shows that he's, he's got this true nature. That's, that's good. Like deep down, he's a good guy and he's not going to, try to exploit this power to to then get this girl. He does the right thing because he has a good reason to do so. He, he's not doing the right thing because he's worried he's going to have to move or because his dad's going to lecture him. 
So he's motivated by, uh, he, from a good place. His, his motivations are good and honest. Ultimately, if he's able to connect with Ayukawa, he wants it to be an honest, real connection without manipulating her affections. In this sense, he's placing a very high value on Ayukawa's consent. I mean, it's not like he's going to hypnotize her and then take advantage of her. It's not that type of consent, but it's like he wants her to have that informed consent going into a relationship with him without him deceiving her in that way by using the power. So uh, I think that's another early example of just the type of value that Kasuga can bring to a relationship with Ayukawa. And I think she doesn't realize that yet, but she does realize that earlier part where he was supporting her despite the entire school just being like, what the hell? So there's these two levels, the one that she realizes that she's conscious of, and then the the level that she can't be conscious of yet because she doesn't know about his power yet. And um, even still, this is the value, both conscious and subconscious, he's bringing to the relationship with Ayukawa. Ironically, in the next scene, he accidentally does everything he sought to avoid with Ayukawa here. He he does to Shikaru-chan. this scene always struck me as odd, both in the manga and the anime, because here she is thinking he's a creep, he's a weirdo, until she sees him casually make this miraculous trick shot using the power, and that's all it takes. Now he's cool, she wants his babies, how quickly can she get him inside of her? It's like five seconds go by between Shikaru-chan thinking uh, Kasuga's a creep and thinking he's cute, he's amazing, he's awesome, I want to be with him. It, it is a really kind of strange thing. I mean, I guess there's no there's no end of women lined up around the the corner to to get with the Harlem Globetrotters. But, like, really, it's just one. This guy's a creep. He's a weirdo. He shoots a basket. Never mind. He's pretty friggin' cute. I want him on me. It really seems like kind of a shallow reason to like someone. You don't really know anything about him. You think he's kind of a creep. He makes a shot and all of a sudden he's cute. It kind of indicates a lack of maturity relative to Ayukawa. And I think it's a really good indication that, at least in the beginning, Shikaru-chan is not really the one for Kasuga. She doesn't know anything about the guy. She hasn't had a conversation with him. The reason why she's interested in him is he made a basket. He made a really impossible basket when he didn't think anyone was looking. One second, she dislikes the whole family. She thinks the sisters are weird, too. A moment later, she's being super sweet to all of them. And, you know, I know some listeners are big Shikaru-chan fans. I don't want to say anything bad about Shikaru-chan. Ultimately, after watching this entire series, it's impossible not to sympathize with her, to empathize with her, to understand her position, and to really feel for her. I feel a lot of compassion for that character. But... At the beginning here, at least, it's like you got to stick to your guns a little bit, right? If you think this guy's a creep, making a basket doesn't make him less of a creep. If his family's a bunch of weirdos, then they're still weirdos even after he makes this basket. She she sort of turns on a dime. And I, to me, it's always shown this kind of willingness to not really stick with what she actually thinks and that she's sort of willing to be swayed and change her mind about things. Look, open-mindedness is good, but you know, if someone's a creep, they're a creep, and and it doesn't really feel like she's willing to stick to her initial assessment of Kasuga at all. I mean, it didn't take much to reverse her her initial assessment. So, 
I oftentimes wondered too, would she have fallen in love with Kasuga if she hadn't witnessed this? I mean, what would, how would the trajectory of Kasuga's relationship with Shikara-chan have gone without this one moment that completely causes her to do a 180 uh, in, in, in her estimation of, of Kasuga? Does Kasuga ever at any point in time realize that this is the moment, at least initially, that made Shikara-chan interested in him? I don't know that there's any point in time that he realizes when she went to kind of from, from kind of thinking he's a weirdo and a creep to she wants to date him. I think for him, he never finds out that she witnessed this. He never finds out that there was a one moment where he kind of impressed her and stood out to her. Instead, it's just kind of all of a sudden this person's like uh, calling me darling in the hallway and like clinging on me and asking me what I'm doing after school. It's, it, it has to be kind of befuddling for him initially that Shikara Chan is just, you know, previous episode, she was on Aiko's side. Hey, you weirdo, you creep. And now, and now she wants to go out and we're dating now all of a sudden it's, it, it has to be a little bit like whiplash for him. And it's kind of funny too. So there's a contrast already between Ayukawa and Shikaru-chan that uh, Ayukawa sort of gets a more real and accurate appraisal of Kasuga. And even though she doesn't know about the power, Shikaru-chan doesn't really either, right? She just assumes that he can make this, this shot. But in a way, Shikaru-chan kind of knows about the power. She's at least witnessed it, even though she doesn't realize she's witnessed it. But it, even though she knows the secret in that sense, she doesn't know the secret, but she's witnessed it in a way that Ayukawa has not. Nonetheless, it still feels like Shikaru-chan is falling for Kasuga under these false pretenses that he was trying to prevent. This is an intentional parallel. Uh, this is an intentional parallel between the women. Uh, Kasuga tries hard to impress Ayukawa, and he fails with the basketball. He doesn't make the shot. But he's not trying at all to impress Shikara-chan, and he succeeds beyond his wildest dreams. This girl's ready to date him, and I don't know, 48 episodes later, OVAs, the movies, she's ready to get married to this guy and have his babies, and he just accidentally impressed her with this ESP, accidentally kissing her in the hallway, if you even want to call it that. I don't, I don't know. He kind of rammed right into her. Um, he kissed her like a wrecking ball kissed my old apartment building back in college. I mean, it's not really, I don't know that that counts, but it counts to Shikaru-chan. He's not even trying. It's effortless for him. And Shikaru-chan just, she just can't get enough of it. Um, but with Ayukawa, no matter how hard he tries, he's not getting ahead. Even when he waves at her in the classroom, she's not having it. I thought it was also interesting in this episode that Ayukawa was being punished by having to deliver and arrange the flowers in the teacher's office. This punishment was reserved for female students, not male. Uh, one of the characters, one of the teacher characters mentions it in a line of dialogue that this is a unique punishment for female students, which clearly shows a, a sexual discrimination in the policy regarding student punishment. That male students would not be forced to do this. They would be, presumably, they would be given some other forms of punishment that are distinctly more male, the females have to go deliver the flowers and arrange them for the teachers. So this probably contributes a little bit to Ayukawa's overall distaste for school teachers, authority, et cetera, that they're, they're showing this really open uh, sexual discrimination in, in their policy. Um, Ayuka was probably also impressed by Kasuga's willingness to stand up to authority at the end there when he's lecturing the teachers. He doesn't know she's there. He has no idea she's overhearing, but he's willing to stand up for 
Shikata Chan specifically, but talking to all delinquents, he's he's standing up to her for her to a lesser degree. Uh, when Kasuga does manage to impress Ayukawa here at the end of the episode, it's not because he's trying. When he clapped for her gymnastic routine, when he clapped for her, that was unintentional. He just kind of did it, right? He didn't realize, and then he looks around, and he's like, oh, you know, maybe I should, I'm the only one clapping, but it, but it was accidental. And then defending her and Shikaru-chan to the teachers, again, he doesn't realize she's overhearing. He's not meaning to impress her. So both times, it's Kasuga just doing Kasuga. He's being genuine, and and he's able to impress her. So I think the takeaway is that being himself, he can do it. He, he's He's got to be himself. He's got to be genuine, and and she likes him for being him. He doesn't have to be Joe Cool like in his dream where he's looking off to the side and being all cool and suave. It's about him being himself. I believe it may have been Polonius to his son Laertes in Shakespeare's Hamlet who said, to thine own self be true, and then Ayuko might kind of like you. I don't know. I want to thank you guys again for listening to this episode. I really appreciate everybody. Uh, If you've liked what you've heard, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Also, please leave me a rating and review. Uh, It's helpful. It's nice to see. It does something very nice for my ego. So you'll make me feel good inside when I see those five-star reviews. And it will help us with our discovery in the um, algorithms of of, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all those other places. SoundCloud, I don't even think we're on SoundCloud. Spotify, that's what I meant to say. We're in Spotify. So a rating, a review, a subscribe, uh, tell an anime-loving friend. I really, really appreciate you guys for listening and for all of your feedback. I want to tell you guys about some other really cool podcasts very quickly. Inner Circle Podcast Network, innercirclepn.com. We've got some really amazing podcasts that are part of the show, uh, part of our network. Simmons and More Podcast, Hashtag No Offense, The Untrained Eye, Failing Hollywood, The Plunge, The Hood Diner. I love all of these people. These are my favorites. I've got a couple of other podcasts. Shit Happens When You Party Naked is my baby. It's where I get to be all comedic and I get to say whatever I want. I make jokes. They're not always appropriate. And that's why that particular podcast lives behind a Patreon paywall. If you go to patreon.com slash team almy you can listen to all of you can become a patron to listen to all of the episodes of shit happens when you party naked including new ones live streams all the time uh please check out shit happens when you party naked i'm also on a podcast called creatures of the night it's a podcast all about conspiracy theories uh cryptids paranormal weird stuff um, it's fun. It's not, it's not political. We don't get QAnon, so don't worry about that. But it's a good time. Uh, check us out, innercirclepn.com. I really, really appreciate you guys listening. I really appreciate it. I've gotten a, a ton of great feedback, and I really, really love it. And I appreciate you guys. I'm going to leave you with this fun track. Thank you.